Shrink Wrap Radio number 803, Howard Eisenberg, M.D., on Dream It to Do It, The Science and the Magic. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. It's Shrink Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Howard Eisenberg, MSc in Psych and MD. He is a medical doctor with additional postgraduate training in both psychology and psychiatry. He's been a lecturer in parapsychology at the University of Toronto and an associate professor of medicine at the University of Vermont. He is also the CEO of the international consultancy Sintrek Inc. He was awarded the first postgraduate degree in Canada for his parapsychological research at McGill University. He reports that his new book, Dream It, Do It, The Science and the Magic, is the culmination of his quest to learn how reality works. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Howard Eisenberg, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to address your listeners. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's great to have you here. We're going to be discussing your book, uh, Dream It to Do It, The Science and Magic. But before we get in, you know, and I have to say, uh, I'm very impressed by the book. Uh, I want to let listeners and viewers know that right off, that it's uh, it's compactly written, given the the scope of material that you're covering. It's a book all about consciousness, and it's pretty hard to uh, condense <laughs> a lot of good information about consciousness, but there, there's a lot of very factual information, and you kind of uh, build an argument for uh, the role of consciousness and everything. And But, but if, before we get into all of that, I'd like to find out more about you, mm-hmm. your background, how you got into all of this. So uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Montreal. Okay. You're Canadian. <laughs> yes. 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 I did and, live in the, in the U.S. in Vermont for several years, but I am Canadian. Yes. Yeah. And um, what was your family like? What, what did your parents do? They were uh, middle class, as we speak of those terms. It's also yeah. perfect to talk of that these days. My father was an accountant. Uh, they were, both of them were not highly educated, and they were not intellectuals. They uh, they certainly wanted me to have a university education eventually to you know advance myself and have good prospects in life broadly, but they didn't have that background themselves. 
Okay. Well, I was wondering, you know, maybe they were mental health professionals or, no. or something like that to, to uh, kind of lay a little mm. groundwork for your interests. Uh, was either of them in, was there a spiritual orientation in the home? Not really. Uh, I mean, in a sense, uh, they, they were members of a conservative uh, Jewish congregation because of my elderly grandparents. But, but in terms of their own personal faith or practice, no, not really. Okay. Uh, and there was no particular encouragement or discouragement for me to pursue the eventual interest I had in consciousness yeah. and you know, reality and spirituality. Yeah. Um, nor was there in my peer group. So very much it was something that came to me intuitively to back to your question at a young age, around 11 yeah. or 12. I started becoming more awake. To a, what, what happened around 11 or 12? Did you have some kind of a spiritual experience or transpersonal well, experience? The way I, I say, and I, I know sometimes the word awaken is used in different contexts, but um, in grade five, while I was in primary school, I had a, a teacher, a classroom teacher, who suddenly recognized an aptitude in me, which had not been recognized in previous teachers. And I had actually been scholastically a very poor performer until grade five, just squeaking by. But somehow he recognized that I had an inner latent aptitude. He's put a little more attention uh, and focus on me in class and encouraged me to sort of speak as I become awake in terms of my intellectual ability and curiosity and to have desire for achievement to better myself. Yeah. And within one year, my scholastic achievement was so substantial that the school recognized me during the graduation ceremony, even though it wasn't my graduation ceremony at that point, grade five. And they gave me an award as the most improved student in the entire school. Yay. <laughs> so that was the beginning of an awareness in me of more potential. Uh-huh. There, there's more to my life and the life perhaps in the outside world. I became very yeah. curious to start learning about the possibilities. And I turned at an early age, around 12 perhaps, to science fiction. I found the stuff of science fiction very sure. interesting. Yeah, of course. And, and at that point, uh, still having the child mind being, you know, open to possibilities. And I thought, like, why can't some of these things one day, you know, actually become a reality? Yeah. And shortly after that, the uh, Russia launched the the first Sputnik. Right. And I thought, like, wow, I'm reading about this stuff as yeah. speculation, not even by scientists, you know, by fiction writers. And some of this is coming true. And over the years, I noticed a number of parallels with things I had read at one time at a very young age, let's get around 12, in science fiction that were actually becoming factual in terms of our knowledge and our technology and our abilities. And, and so what did you end up majoring in, in college? Psychology. Psychology. I did honor yeah. psychology program. I also did a master's psychology, experimental psychology my thesis subject was in telepathy, um, and I did this as also as a joint degree program with my medical degree. So I did the two degrees simultaneously, the medical degree and the research degree in psychology. Wow, interesting. And so uh, by telepathy, you mean mental telepathy, right? I mean, I mean well, that. Well, yes. how did you get into that? Was, 
had you read material well, uh, suggest about so. <laughs> the research that was going on in uh, parapsychology? I, I, I'm glad to answer your questions and not just leave it to you to rein me in at times because I can go you know, deep and broad here. Um, it's so okay. We've, to, got, we've got a fair <laughs> amount of time here. <laughs> so, so back to my early science fiction readings. They yeah. talked at that time about things like time travel and teleportation. Sure. It's got me wondering. Now, of course, this yeah. is also pre-computer time. We're talking over a half century ago. Yeah, uh, but somehow I, I discovered bookstores, and back then yeah. you know, paperbacks, right. and and that yeah. was my treat going in with a big oh, you know yeah. full of paperbacks. Yeah, and and eventually it, I found in looking at various paperbacks something serious about such things like telepathy, time travel, and so on, precognition, and I found out about the work of Dr. J. B. Ryan in yeah. uh, Durham, North Carolina. Right. Who, was in many ways sort of the, the father figure for yeah. parapsychology in the U.S. and somewhat internationally. Yeah. Uh, and actually uh, met him in my early 20s. I went down oh, there really? uh, wow. to meet with him at one point. Um, yeah, it's, it's, he's a figure I've only known through through books. Mm -hmm. um, so to cut back well, to your, your question, so that was the root, still the science fiction, you know, speculation. Yeah. Then doing some just curious, serious reading to see if I could find something about that would lead me to someone again, like the researcher, Dr. Ryan. But around that time too, I always thought, you know, from early ages, I said to you, I've been working intuitively. And so I started getting curious about, can I do some of this stuff myself? Like is, instead uh -huh. of just contacting scientists or reading about it, if this is a possibility, can I maybe experience it, do it yeah. myself? And so my first experiments that I remember we're sitting in the back of streetcars and buses, and I'd focus on someone at the very front of the streetcar or bus. Uh -huh. And my uh, experimental challenge was to see if, if I would just look towards them, concentrate with intent, with the intent that they would feel a presence and turn around and look directly at me. Wow, yeah. And do this within a minute or two of time. It had to be very quickly. Yeah. And, and I found I could do that. And then wow. I decided to up the ante. I made it more difficult. I, a young experimenter, you know, thinking. <laughs> yeah, so right. another condition. So the other condition was, so now I would only pick on somebody who was reading something. So they had to be absorbed in something, not just sitting there, you know, uh, perhaps reassociating. And that worked too. And then I would only choose somebody who was in dialogue and conversation with someone beside them, you know, like someone maybe deeply distracted, still could do it. Wow. So that was probably the first, you know, time I actually tried myself uh -huh. experimenting. Coming back to your question about telepathy. Well, you did go on at some point to do a uh, to do graduate work in parapsychology at the University of Toronto. No, that was at McGill actually. At McGill. Oh, that was at McGill. You know, I, don't I did know have postgraduate studies uh, at the University of Toronto in psychiatry, but the psychology oh, research. I got mixed McGill. up. Okay, well. Uh, Tell us about that program. Was that sort of a, a, a self-designed uh, 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 PhD? You're going to love the answer to that question, too. Uh, yeah. So I knew that the chairman of the psychology department at McGill at that time was the famous D.O. Hebb. Uh, he, he's the one, yes. you know, historically, who came up with the notion, you know, cells that fire together, wire together, like sort of the, some ways the father of neuroplasticity today. But I also knew that he was an outspoken skeptic 
of anything parapsychological, psychic, supernatural, uh, uh-huh. spiritual. In fact, he had actually stated so in print in one of the APA journals a number of yeah. years ago, which, which I cite in my, my book, uh, Treatment to Do It. And I thought it would be a good challenge for me to take on someone like that who was saying in advance, I reject all of it a priori. He didn't say the evidence is insufficient. He said he rejects it a priori because it's impossible with his understanding of reality. That's what he said back then. So it doesn't matter what your evidence was. So I thought it would be quite an achievement for me and my personal growth if I would take on a challenger like that, who said, like, no matter what you do, I won't accept it. This is kind thing, of like being in the streetcar and getting people to turn around. Yes, so you I like raise the, you I raise like the bar. Yeah, I like challenges, right? I still do. Yeah. Uh, even with this book, for example, yeah. uh, coming back to its purpose, which we may get to later on. So I decided I would do the research there. My hope in the bigger scheme of things was by doing it there in, in the line stem, that yes. it would you know, really be a breakthrough for the whole field of parapsychology for other researchers. To, to have more of a foothold of legitimacy yeah. in, in higher institutions. Um, didn't quite happen that way. I did, I did convince the university to allow me to do this research, but I had to go through some interesting hurdles to do that back to, you know, guided intuitively. So when I went to the university and I said, I'd like these two degrees simultaneously, they weren't at that point interested in what my field of research was, just the notion I wanted them together. So you can't do it together. I said, why not? because no one's ever done it before. I said, so why is that a reason for me not to be able to do it? Aren't we supposed to be yeah. the leading center you know, of knowledge? Right. And they said, well, there's practical problems. I said, like what? They said, well, for example, every student in this university has a computer ID number. You'd be in two different faculties, faculty of medicine and faculty of graduate studies at the same time. The computers don't know how to process that. And I said, are the computers here to help us? Are we supposed to fit into their templates? That's so still well, an very, ongoing even, question. You know, yeah, no, no, <laughs> yeah. Then they came back with another even very basic question. Yeah. I said, well, if you do two degrees at once, you're not exactly going to be using all our facilities like doubly, like 200%, because you'll still be here for the library and so on. We wouldn't know how to calculate your tuition. I said, I'm not asking for a discount. They finally gave me the green light and allowed me to do it. So back okay. to your question. No, it was not a program that you know, pre-existed or even a program I had to create it. And with some real obstacles, it wasn't encouraged again. Yeah. So you were in the medical school. This was when you were working on getting your MD. That's right. So both both the MD study and now parapsychological study. Mm -hmm. For my master's in psychology. Yeah. So my next question is, did you do actual research or was it more of a literature review kind of thing? No, absolutely. It, it, It was research. Okay, well, tell um, us I, I about knew, that. I knew from the literature that had been published by other researchers that when people had psychic experiences, most of the time it involved some type of emotional stimuli. Right. Sometimes, right. Uh, for example, a crisis. Someone might yes. be in a life and death crisis of some sort. Right. Danger, and people could sense it, supposedly, you know, at some distance, or a premonition about a coming danger. But often it was related to something as a pretty emotional and, and often in a self-protective way. So I decided to try to create a form of controlled stimulation, which would predictably cause some emotional experience for people watching it. And that was to use, especially edited motion picture films back then, 
And I, I chose a number. One of them, for example, coming back to strong emotion, was from the Boston Strangler movie. Okay. So, and yeah. I especially edited these as well to make them even more enhanced, more dramatic yeah. for, you know, positive or negative affect. So that was my, the stimulation I was working with. And then I also knew from the literature that when people are picking up psychic information, parapsychological information, so to speak, usually they're in a kind of a free associative state of mind. So I had their partners in another floor of a concrete building without any windows and locked doors, lying down on a mat comfortably. The light was closed in the room. There was an experiment outside the room and the locked doors, so no one could convey any information yeah. one way or another. The experimenter outside the room with the recipient lying down also didn't know what the stimulation would be that day that, for that trial. And afterwards, what I had the, the subjects do was they'd be awakened at a certain point. We determined the, you know, the coordinate, the, the schedule time-wise. And they would be asked to free associate, write down immediately, what were you experiencing in those several minutes when you were lying down in the dark? Then they were also given five photographs. One photograph was actually from the actual movie clip that their partner was being shown, the so-called ascender, if you like. The others were chosen to be comparable visually, but had nothing to do with the actual movie film clip. So in other words, similar quality, similar size. There was nothing, mm -hmm. if you would just look at a, a series of yeah. them randomly to suggest yeah. one would be more attractive or more likely to be the movie or used in this experiment. So we did two separate measures to make it really brief. One was to look at whether the free association comments really were rich in detail of what visually the sender, so to speak, watching the film was actually being presented with. The second one was we also had the sender after they had the experience of watching the movie clip, take the same deck of five photographs, duplicate set, and do the same thing, rank order them in terms of how closely it approximated their experience subjectively during the movie. Because you could show someone, for example, let's say a clip of a, uh, a football game, and some people might choose something, let's say, warlike, because they, they think of, you know, a physical confrontation. Right. Someone may choose something suggesting food, like popcorn or hot dogs. So just because we have the same objective stimulus doesn't mean subjectively it has the same associations or affect. So this is a way of capturing that as well. Then I did a rank order correlation between the two decks of photographs and found that also positively correlated. So, and I had a number of other measures too. So it was yeah. very, very powerful evidence. Let, let me ask you uh, a couple of methodological questions mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. uh, you you said they, they were partners where they randomly assigned to yes, sender and receiver assigned. or were they marital partners? No, or, no okay. they were randomly assigned. Randomly assigned. The other thing I want to ask you is I noticed that your uh, that the uh, the prologue, that's not the right word, the introduction to Forward, your book mm -hmm. yeah, was written by Stanley Krippner. Mm -hmm. Stanley Krippner, uh, to my mind, is like the, the one of the certainly for a long time the foremost uh, person in parapsychology. And I was in graduate school at the University mm -hmm. of Michigan mm -hmm. when I probably towards the end of my study there. And I have to say, psychology, Heb was no exception in terms of his. Oh, I know. 
but his, he was extreme. Uh, his skepticism, <laughs> because most, and particularly mm -hmm. experimental psychologists, but even clinical psychologists and so on, mm -hmm. uh, psychology for a long time had this physics envy problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if they couldn't fit it into the natural paradigm of what we understood from physics and so right. on, then it, it couldn't be. And then Stanley Krippner, who did some, oh, I think uh, uh, one of my peers mm -hmm. referred me to, you know, say, hey, there's this guy, Stanley Krippner, who's, you know, proving uh, ESP. Mm -hmm. So I looked into it and uh, that was enough to swing, to open me up to be uh, more open to the idea. And then later to, to meet Stanley Krippner and get to know mm -hmm. him some. So, uh, to what extent were you drawn? Were you had you were you aware at that time of Stanley Krippner's research, and was that one of the things that was uh, yes sh shaping so I, your I, research? I was aware of his research on dream telepathy and Maimonides. Yes, uh, which part it gave me again with the notion of using an affect stimulus stimulation. Right. Um, yeah. So, in in part, it triggered you know the creative association of doing yeah. my variation of it. And yeah. I also became interested to personally connect with Stanley. And as with J.B. Ryan, I sought him out almost a half a century ago. And over the years, I met him a number of times. And he's yeah. um, one of the people I, I have the highest respect for, both in the field of parapsychology and science more broadly, and even as a man. I, sure. I, I'm yeah. so impressed yeah. by his modesty with all his accomplishments. I know. Yeah. Wow. And he's so and modest. Yeah. Wonderful. And, Wonderful and role walks, model that way. He walks a careful, a careful line uh, as a as a scientist, because everybody wants it. A lot of people would like to tear him down, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he he carries himself to be as impeccable as possible from a scientific point of view, intellectual point of view. And, and he really uh, is. I mean, when we have our, you know, our own private conversation. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's impeccable. It's rigorous. Yeah, he's very rigorous. And I and at the same time, he's interviewed and, and studied all kinds of people that just seem to be so far out. And I once asked him about that. And uh, I was intrigued by his answer. Mm -hmm. He said, I, I yeah, I, I study much, but I don't necessarily I'm not necessarily believing at all. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was interested in that, that, you know, that, that line that he walks. He's a scientist. But, I mean, yeah. he, I never thought of him as someone who's just a true believer and trying to validate his faith. Yeah. He's a scientist. Yeah. In, in the true sense of the word. Well, I'm glad to, uh, that we have that background because in my mind, it helps to validate your work. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so so, um, so that was the research that you did, and did you have any difficulty getting ex getting it accepted? By I assume you had a doctoral committee, maybe D.O. Hebb, and some other mm -hmm. random faculty who were <laughs> maybe so, so, somewhat skeptical so, about what so, you were up to. So, so the good news is, once I got the clearance to be able to do this dual degree yeah. and approval from the psychology department to have the subject matter for my thesis in parapsychology and telepathy specifically. Once I had that clearance, which took some work, as I explained, 
No, I had no problem at, at the end point. Uh, but also I had chosen one of the members of my thesis committee who was another uh, hard-nosed skeptic about the impossibility of such things. And he was a statistician expert as well. Uh-huh. Okay, so, that's so a I good wanted chance. someone, you know, <laughs> if there was any hole in my statistic methodologies, and I had a number of different statistical measures. So it wasn't just depending on one or two. There were, there were multiple you. ones. Yeah. All correlated very strongly. Yeah. And he said to me at the end of it, he didn't try and stop you know, going through, but he just said to me, he said, I'd rather reject the validity of statistics than accept the implications of your research. But he did nothing to try and stop it because he could find no flaw. Yeah, and, wow, and that's, that's himself, a great quote. Um, I was there at a very interesting time, which again, I, I describe in my book anecdotally. It was Hebb's secretary, who was the one in the department who was assigned to type up my thesis. And so I was in her office one day, just doing some final proofreading corrections. And Dr. Hebb walked out of an adjacent office. And she, at that point, had understood the whole research. We we're just doing some fine you know, tuning on, on, on the, say, typographical corrections. And so she called out to him and she said, Professor Hebb, Professor Hebb, you were wrong. ESP is real. This research proves it. So that was a very momentous you know, time. And it wait, took wait, a while I, I, I didn't quite understand up. that. What mm-hmm. did she say? She said, Professor Hebb, you were wrong. ESP is real. Uh-huh. This research proves it. And, and, that, and, that, and, he... that's what, and that's what turned his thinking. And shortly afterwards, he started talking publicly that he's willing to exist, to accept the existence, at least, excuse me, of short-term, short-distance telepathy. Yeah. And then later on, as I quote in my book, it was much more open-ended. He didn't put any wow. limits on it. Yeah, Wow. Well, that's a that's a real achievement, I must say. And um, so, so let's kind of go through the book. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, we don't have time to go th- to get to, to get as deep into the book as you do in the book, but uh, to have you kind of, I'm maybe kind of walk you through your chapters and mm-hmm. and have you uh, respond to it. Sure. Um, and I'm wondering, but to jump ahead a little bit, did your findings that you had um, draw you to any uh, spiritual practices, uh, to, to you know, readings in Eastern uh, or, or Western mysticism, etc.? Yeah, tell us about that. How, how it's impacted you as a person? Well, I, again, I was very interested once I became aware to learn. And, yes. and my, my interest was broad. So even in my late adolescent, early teens, I was already starting to read books about physics um, and mysticism uh, and a little bit about comparative religions, the Oriental religions, for example. Uh, out of curiosity, intellectually, all the, of the time I had this interest and also starting to do my actual research. And I also went on eventually to teach parapsychology as a credit course at the University of Toronto. But during all of that period, I very much was still working as a scientist under the materialist reductionist paradigm of reality with the assumption mm-hmm. that ultimately we could explain everything in material terms that although these were things we couldn't explain in terms of what was known about brain function, one day we could eventually be able to describe and explain it. Maybe there's some other type of electromagnetic 
radiation, a different right. type of radiation, right. whatever. Um, and it was uh, wasn't until about three years ago. How many? In, three years ago. Three, three years ago. Okay. When I was invited to present a keynote presentation for the annual meeting of an association of healers who do therapeutic touch, heal, laying on a pan, so to speak, that I I felt uh, a reason for all the other things I was doing at that time to go deeply back into the literature of parapsychology and see what, had, if anything, had been further elucidated over the last three decades. But the same thing with modern quantum mechanics. I did a very deep dive. Like, uh -huh. what have we learned to understand the cosmological workings of, you know, the universe? Um, and, and did a deeper dive into comparative religions. Started getting back also into some so-called wisdom traditions and some of the indigenous teachings. Uh, also though, factoring in the latest research in neuroplasticity and on psychedelic research yeah. that was going on recently, getting a little more exciting in that area. So a lot of different diverse areas suddenly doing a very, very deep you know, dive data dump. And suddenly to my surprise, I didn't expect this, I suddenly, experienced a 180 degree shift in my understanding. Some might call this um, an insight or a revelation, uh, but I suddenly understood in a very fundamental way, a number of things that, that one, our whole sense of what is real and reality is totally wrong. But secondly, that the particular reason that parapsychology was having so much difficulty being accepted, why it was so hard on demand to produce laboratory results and have them replicated was not because it wasn't real phenomena. It was more like we were just trying to capture shadows without realizing it. We weren't actually trying even to get the original source of such phenomena. And that source wasn't physical and it wasn't out there. It was internal yeah. from a level of consciousness that we're all part of and draw from. I suddenly realized that there was more evidence in support of what we now call the primacy of consciousness, than there was for the existence of an independent material reality. And <laughs> right. you know, I went very yeah. deep into various chapters, yeah. like even the one on yeah. physics, and, and showing that even the physics yeah. physicists are saying the same thing. But the notion many of us still have, not just in psychology, but broadly, of you know what is reality and what is physical solidity. Yeah. Totally wrong. Not partly, it's totally wrong. Yeah. So, so suddenly I realized that the materialist reductionist paradigm of reality, which has been with us since Democrates in ancient Greece, it just got more and more elaborate as we got more and more into our technological developments. It's a metaphysical fiction. It was a matter just we believed it, we bought into it. But there's no proof for it. The proof is for the primacy of consciousness. So in my book, what I try to do is provide, as you said, it's deep, a lot of information in, this, in a deceptively small book exhaustive comprehensive information from many different facets that when you connect those dots lead to this as a conclusion not as a hypothesis and connecting it all in a logical way too so i think my book as i understand it and you're welcome to you know uh, come back at me if you think there's any holes in it it proves the primacy of consciousness it's not just proposing the case for it it proves it and with that more radically when you ask me about spiritual backgrounds it leads us to an understanding of what historically and various ways we refer to as God, as a creator, not of the same level of which we are, but from which we have come. Except that 
historically in most religions and currently, it's a matter of faith. You're told to believe what you were born into in your family or by the right. religious teachers yeah. dominant in your community. But this is not about faith. This is about knowing. Um, I really don't have anything terribly skeptical <laughs> to, to well, confront you with, but uh, um, I know one of the things that opened me up to to that kind of awareness for short periods of time, I, I've, it's hard to stay in that place for me. Mm -hmm. um, was psychedelic drugs, uh, mm -hmm. uh, psychedelics in the '60s mm -hmm. while I was in graduate school, mm -hmm. and um, but a one of the parapsychologists in that period, in the modern period of the '60s or '70s, and I'm always blocking on his name. But he brought forth uh, a concept that I've found very, uh, very interesting called repression of the sublime. Mm -hmm. And just as we have the, the uh, tendency to repress things that are horrible, it was his contention that it's hard for us to admit these things that are going the other direction that are, you know, in the God direction, and that we may, some of us may break, may break through that repression mm -hmm. or may touch it, but then because of this repression of the sublime, and I think that's what happens mm -hmm. to me <laughs> to well, own it. Um, you know, in my book, I say we're amphibious beings, so we, we exist in this level of reality where we're individual bodies and egos and personalities in different locations. And, and this is part of our reality. But to me, as I understand it, it's only one part of our reality, one level of our reality. At another level, we're not separate beings and we're not right. in separate places. It, it's all coming out of the same, so to speak, field. And more and more people well, um, are saying this. It's, it's not as radical a, a proposition in psychology as it was at one time. There a number of psychologists uh, and psychiatrists it's, who are, it, it's It's time to play over too. I look at the world going massively insane right now. It's time they realize maybe there's something yeah. wrong with their paradigms. But yeah. let's come back, you know, uh, Jules Eisenberg decades ago, who's a, a psychiatrist, he coined the term psi resistance. PSI psi oh, is the abbreviated yeah. term for all types of psychic phenomena. Yeah. And he thought it was at a subconscious level that we actually had this filtering to deny yeah, it. Yes, that's and then, the same idea. You know, Alan Watts, as I described in my books, came up with this interesting metaphor, you know, that why do we have this world created, so to speak, by God? God? Why would, if there was a God who knew everything, had absolute power, why would that God then want to create us and this world? And, and you know, he used the analogy of like when we're bored, we daydream because, you know, our, our, our mind wants to be aware of something and arguably you can't really be conscious unless you are aware of something. That's probably how we define consciousness is awareness of being aware, but that has to be of something, you know, that, that you're aware of. So arguably in a sense, the model he works with is that in a way, what we call God or the creator, the universal mind is a more neutral term, dreams us up for its own fuller expression of greater awareness through 
us as proxies, just like when we ourselves have dreams. And in our own dreams, for a while, we, we lose sense that we're just dreaming and we have other people we're interacting with, uh, other places physically perhaps we're visiting and, and so on, but it's all just coming out of our imagination. Now, Dr. Alan Watts, coming back to this, also thought though that there was a fail-safe that for this to work well, God, so to speak, or the universal mind had to sort of forget that it's generating these other manifestations, these other entities, these other relationships, these other experiences. So it may be intrinsic that there's a part of us that sort of blocks this awareness of this fuller connection mm -hmm. so that we can also be out here living and, and uh, right. providing again a richer experience for the universal mind's yeah. consciousness, awareness. Yeah. I, I'm struck that it's just been, it's three years ago. I mean, I'm, I feel lucky to get you so close to the point where you had this uh, profound shift and uh, only three years ago. And I take it that was not a result of psychedelics? No, no, it was really a, an incredibly deep data dump. And because you've seen the book, you know, it's data I'm working with. Yeah. So when I say deep, it was really, really deep and in many, many different fields. Um, and I'll tell you also that when I first had this insight, because it came quickly, finally, it, it, it wasn't welcomed emotionally. It was like, uh, oh gosh, like, if this is like real, I'm all alone. Like uh, all of these people don't really exist and these things and so on, my possessions or whatever doesn't exist. Yeah. I'm all alone. And then suddenly, fortunately, <laughs> I realized, no, it's not that I'm all alone. I'm connected to everything and everyone yeah. is the opposite. But at first, the first reaction was, wow. no, I yeah, don't like this yeah, understanding of reality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, you know, you, you, the first chapter of your book mm -hmm. is things are not as they seem, and you've mm -hmm. kind of taken us through that. And, um, and I like the section that you have in the third chapter, uh, the real basis of scientific discovery and invention, because I've often thought about that myself, that it just, it's, it's, you know, the, the model that we're taught of science mm -hmm. in graduate school is that a very objective person who calls himself a scientist objectively mm -hmm. tests a hypothesis, which he then very sanely accepts or rejects. But mm -hmm. if we look at, at how people are really wired and what really mm -hmm. happens is mm -hmm. uh, when when psychologists or other kinds of scientists get a hypothesis, mm -hmm. they're very reluctant to let go of the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. They, they right. often it's from an intuitive place mm -hmm. that they have this strong, strong conviction, wait, this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that a lot of what we think of as objective science really comes from a very deep subjective place which is yeah, what you're confirmation saying. and confirmation bias yeah. yeah yeah and and people used to i used to wonder how they could talk about the science of yoga but actually mm -hmm. 
if you go into meditation, if you go into looking inwardly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with an open mind, and um, it seems like what we think of as outer can also mm -hmm. be arrived at in a very inner way. Yeah, I use also the example sense. of the Mobius strip, you know, where yeah. they're the same. It's just another perspective, the in and the out. Yeah, yeah. They're not really separate, services and different. What else do we want to say in the time that remains? Um, is, well, have you got you to might, say you everything might be that you want to yeah, say? You might be interested in, first yeah. of all, you know, so why did I write this book? So, yes, I had this insight or understanding or revelation, but nevertheless, you know, why write up as a book, especially in, in you know, in, in the middle of a, a pandemic experience, which yeah. you know, is, is stressing us all in various ways. I felt called once I had that insight. David, I felt called. I, I, I only I heard a voice, but I, I just felt I have to share this with the world. And yeah. I don't mean when I say that my academic world or more even, you know, in a more focused way, my, let's say, colleagues in parapsychology or psychology. I meant the world. Um, when I said I had that insight that our sense of an outer independent existing physical reality is totally wrong. It's a metaphysical fiction. It's a superstition, if you like, and that we're really forgetting the real essence of our reality, who we are, who we can be, what we can do differently. Mm -hmm. When I look at what's happening in the world, aside from the science of this and philosophical understandings, we're witnessing all of us right now in this dimension, the collapse of the materialistic reduction paradigm of reality, not because of scientific discoveries, not because of logic, which is what my book's about, but because of just, it's so obvious, it's all breaking down now. Yeah, we, yeah. We're having societal, civilizational collapse in many respects, and I won't go into the laundry list, but we both know what I'm talking about sure. in that respect. Yeah. The, the global climate change is already happening. It's yeah. not something that just maybe will happen. It is happening. Yeah. Uh, the pandemic of COVID-19 we're, we're going through right now has not left us. Many people are done with it. The virus is not done with us. I this is one of the most rapidly mutating yeah. viruses in history. Yeah. And when you think of a virus, you think of something kind of dumb. It's just a little you know, fragment of right. genetic information. But if you look at it collectively, it's a mutating intelligence. Yeah. And humans are failing the IQ test in dealing with that virus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so in so many ways, yeah. um, again, as I said, our, our understanding of what is real, what is important, how materiality works, it's breaking down now, big time. Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking of Al Gore's title for his film, An Uncomfortable Truth. Yeah, Inconvenient and, Truth, I think it was. And, yeah. and you've been visited with, as we all have, with an uncomfortable truth. And I can understand your, your hesitation to put that out there on the one hand, and on the other, your sense of a call. I mean... Hey, folks, wake up. <laughs> if there's anything we can do, it's time to do it. Yeah. And, and you know, similarly to, if, if we go back to that model of the universal mind, God consciousness dreams us up for a greater e expansion of its own awareness, consciousness. I'd still come back to, if I could be also the uh, analogy with the human model, as we understand ourselves as humans, when we have 
go to sleep and we have a dream experience. Sometimes our dreams are enjoyable and we welcome them. But yeah. once in a while, especially when we're young, we have um, negative dreams, nightmares. Uh, some of them are like night terrors and would totally freak you know, some people out, even as adults. I, I have some patients now, just when I was talking to you earlier today, uh, who, who has unfortunately experienced as an adult of uh, being attacked and it keeps coming up in, in his dreams and it scares you know, him immensely. I don't think the universal consciousness, the, the God consciousness, and it's very difficult working with these words as you appreciate because they're applied in a different way. Sure. So I'm going to use them kind of symbolically, but then the map is not the territory anyway. We, we take words literally sometimes too much. I don't think the God consciousness wants this turmoil and pain and destruction in this world. And I think if we understand our true nature, that we're all coming from the same source, we're all in some ways one. And if we come back to caring for each other compassionately, and collaborating with each other, working together with each other. I think there's enough of a window of opportunity, but it's a very small one yeah. to really turn things around and save ourselves, save our civilization, save our planet, yeah. and have yeah, a better life quality globally than we've ever perhaps had before. But that window you know, is so narrow now. We don't have much time. It's only right. a few years at most. Yes, yeah. You mentioned patients, and I was forgetting that you're a practicing psychiatrist. Psychotherapist. I'm a sort of a hybrid because I have the psychology degree and I have yeah. a medical degree. And I did have psychiatric training, but I'm really a hybrid. I call myself a medical psychologist, yeah. medical psychotherapist. And I'm still so, practicing, yes. So this, this must be a, a hard time. I mean, given what you've just said, the, you know, I was trained to be a therapist, but I haven't, I haven't mm -hmm. practiced in years and years. It must be a hard time to practice holding this vision. It's a hard time to practice. And as you may know, uh, there's a very high burnout rate right now in the healthcare you know, profession broadly yeah. uh, and the mental health care needs because of the pandemic and other things going on that are upsetting and making people feel more insecure are also you know, incredibly high. So it's a real mismatch. And, and the people I'm working with are definitely more needier, let's say if they had anxiety or depression than they were would have been pre-pandemic times. Yeah. So it's very draining. But on the other hand, what I've discovered, what I understand, what I'm able now to teach can give people really hope. It's like the ultimate personal empowerment manual. Like, like how do you really make sense and suddenly not just let life happen to you, but start being in a position of some choice of power? Of how you want it to happen for you and for others. How does this uh, express itself in the work that you do with others? Well, as you may know, coming back just to the psychotherapy uh, area particularly, so much of what torments, bothers, holds people back is either about what happened to them or didn't happen to them yeah. or what they need to happen or they think is going to happen to them. But it's not about what's going on right now. Right now, yeah. And, you know, and that's just also an ancient spiritual practice, you know, just center in the present moment, in the here and now. If you're really in the here and now, anchored, rooted, as I say to some patients, it's almost impossible to feel the weight of depression because that's about past stuff. Yeah. 
And if you're really anchored in the here and now, it's almost impossible to feel anxiety, worry, because that's only about a possible future. It isn't now. So when you're in the now, I call it your point of power. It's very powerful to understand it, both conceptually, but also then learn experientially how to do it on demand. Right. And there are a number of ways. Um, many people have heard of, and it's more popular these days, meditation. But it's not the type of thing you can just do on demand. And, you know, it just clears your mind. But there are things you can do on demand. One is what I call sensory grounding. So wherever you are, if you're really yeah. in a, you know, bad experiential state, uh, becoming very aware of the physicality of your relationship to your immediate physical environment. So for example, I'm sitting in a chair, I think you are right now. So if you're sitting in a chair, you suddenly feel yourself being supported by the chair, you know, below and perhaps behind and maybe arms, you know, as well. If you're standing, you feel a solid surface under your feet. Uh, you look in your immediate environment at what's around you right now. And perhaps listen to any sounds in your immediate environment right now. So yeah. again, you're, you're grounding yourself, you're anchoring yourself, you're stabilizing yourself. And then I also work with things like diaphragmatic breathing. When I teach patients to breathe a little more deeply, mm -hmm. to change the ratio of inhalation and exhalation. So exhalation is about twice as long in duration as the exhalation, inhalation ratio, excuse me. So the inhalation is half as long as the exhalation. So for example, if I said like count to three, as you inhale in your mind, one, two, three, I teach them exhalation would be double that. One, two, three, four, five, six. So by breathing more deeply, by changing the ratio, they're activating their vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the largest nerve in the human body. Unlike most nerves, the vagus nerve is a two-way street. It doesn't just go one way, like a motor control or sensory information. It can go both ways. And the vagus is able to change the entire brain state within just moments. It's in fact, it's the fastest way to downregulate the nervous system. So back to your question, I'm just giving examples, obviously. So I teach them, still working with brain. It's sure. not that I'm saying brain doesn't exist. It's just that I'm saying brain is not the source of consciousness, but it modulates and you can learn to change the modulation. So that's one example. Yeah. Well, this could be a good place for us to wrap it up, I think. Uh, 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 we've, we've gone the full, <laughs> the full circle. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so if people want to find out more about you, do you have a website or I do. something that you'd like to tell people about on, you know, how to follow up yeah. aside from <laughs> buying your book? Yeah. The, the most way best way to get general information about me would be through my website, which is www.drhowardeisenberg.com. Uh, I'm also fairly active on LinkedIn. Dr. Howard Eisenberg, I want to thank you for being my guest today thank you, on Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this opportunity. I feel privileged to have had yet another extraordinary guest in my long parade of remarkable individuals. Today I'm referring to Howard Eisenberg, MD, who is both a dedicated psychiatrist 
and the author of the 2022 book, Dream It to Do It, The Science and the Magic. The title might suggest this is a self-help book about achieving your dreams. Once I got into it, however, it quickly became clear that this is a book about the primacy of consciousness. Dr. Eisenberg draws upon everything from quantum mechanics to philosophy to the history of science to the wisdom traditions and more to make the case that we have been culturally brainwashed to think that reality is, quotes, out there rather than, quotes, in here. In our interview, Dr. E, as I will refer to him here, described his awakening to an intense curiosity about the nature of reality from around age nine. This is not to say that he had his peak spiritual experience at that age, but that he had a questioning mind and a realization he couldn't accept all adult wisdom at face value. As a consequence, he became a voracious reader. When he was a youngster, much of that reading was in science fiction, which opened his mind to the idea of a wide range of alternate realities. His curiosity about the workings of the human mind led him to major in psychology at both the undergraduate and master's level. Not surprisingly, he began to wonder about ESP, having discovered articles by J.B. Rhine, whom he eventually met, and the groundbreaking work of Stanley Krippner, whom he not only eventually met, but who wrote the foreword to Dr. E.'s current book. In the interview, Dr. E. regaled us with his personal experiments using his mind to influence fellow passengers on a bus. These exploits ripened into his persuading the eminent brain researcher D.O. Hebb into chairing his self-designed doctoral program in parapsychology at McGill University. He conducted careful ESP research which showed such strong statistical significance that even the skeptical Dr. Hebb ultimately came around to acknowledging the reality of at least some psychic phenomena. Dr. E's Dream It to Do It book is very well written. His argument for the primacy of consciousness is well substantiated. The writing is clear and persuasive. For example, he writes... Quote, Imagine how radically different your experience and understanding of reality would be if you were born in primitive times, before the development of our modern technologies. Even in our current era, there are many different prejudices, ideologies, and religions, all immersed in the same reality, but with very different interpretations and beliefs. We're programmed by our experiences to see reality through different lenses. Our beliefs are like filters, blinding us to how others might see and value things very differently. Close quote. Elsewhere, he writes, Weirdly, the leading-edge scientific discoveries of modern physics about the nature of the external physical world increasingly correspond with the descriptions of the ancient wisdom traditions. Physics has to rely on highly complex, high-tech equipment for its, quote, discoveries. By contrast, 
the source for the ancient wisdom traditions was simply the subjective experiences of mystics. And yet, soft mysticism and hard science are converging, ancient and modern, subjective and objective, on the same conceptions about the underlying nature of reality. Close quote. Consciousness and cosmology are such huge topics. I'm impressed by the way Dr. E has managed to package so much fact and insight into a relatively slim volume. Here is the index of chapter titles. Chapter 1. Things are not as they seem. 2. The only thing you can absolutely know. 3. The real basis of scientific discovery and invention. 4. Brain science and consciousness. 5. The reality challenge from the discoveries of modern physics. 6. Parapsychological research on mind over matter. 7. Historical spiritual teachings about the primacy of consciousness. 8. How reality works. And finally, nine, how to envision and navigate alternative realities. As I say, it's remarkable that he's been able to cover so much ground in such a relatively compact way. It's even more remarkable that he's been able to restrain his sense of urgency in such a disciplined way. Like myself and so many of my recent guests, He's alarmed by the threats to life on planet Earth as we have known it, namely the climate crisis, the pandemic, which is not over but gathering strength, the collapse of cooperation, the swing toward authoritarianism, and so on. He sees all this as a collective dream we have created and challenges us to come together and dream a different dream. Once again, the book is Dream It to Do It, The Science and the Magic by Howard Eisenberg, M.D. Hi, Dr. Dave. Charles Cogshill calling from St. Louis, Missouri. Longtime listener and fan. Just want to send out a thank you for the incredible service you provide to growing clinical excellence uh, and to the general public and want to uh highly recommend others like myself that have benefited from your wonderful informative interviews to stop what they're doing right now and go ahead and make that uh, contribution, that pledge to you for, again, the excellent work that you do. Uh, wishing you the best and hope to donate many, many times more. Thanks and good luck. Thank you, Charles Cogshell there in St. Louis for your donations and encouragement. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Your regular donations really help to keep me going. By the way, let me remind you once again that Shrinkwrap Radio is now available on Spotify. Just look for S-H-R-I-N-K-R-A-P-R-A-D-I-O.com. All one word. And with that, once again, it's time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's remarkable guest, Howard Eisenberg, MD, for sharing his personal background and discussing his book, Dream It to Do It, and his urgent call for us to wake up from our collective nightmare. Next week, my London collaborator, 
Isabella Clark will be interviewing UK artist and ecotherapist Dr. Mary Jane Russ, PhD, about her work and her new book, Towards an Eco-Psychotherapy. So with that, once again, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and the earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.